Good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to a very special City Club Forum. I'm Dan Malthrop of the City Club, and we are at the Great Lakes Brewing Company. Today is the, uh, this is the inaugural forum in our Constitution Ale series, uh, a, a series of programs where we're focusing on the United States Constitution, the strange compromises that went into it, and the ways in which those compromises continue to affect our lives today. Tonight, a more perfect gerrymander, a conversation about the drawing of the boundaries of congressional districts and why that matters. We are joined by Fred Levinson, who is the legal director for the ACLU of Ohio, and Patrick Lewis, a member of the Federalist Society and a partner at Baker Hostetler. And we're gonna start with um, Article One, Section Two, of the US Constitution. All of you, I think, you can follow along in your pocket constitutions that were distributed earlier. Um, and this is a, a little bit into, the, into this. The, the House of Representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states. And the electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislature. More words, 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 words. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. The actual enumeration shall be made within three years after the first meeting of the Congress of the United States and within every subsequent term of 10 years in such manner as they shall by law direct. Somewhat later in this series, we'll get to the, the census that has just been um, named there. But Patrick Lewis, I want to start with you there with Article, two, Article 1, Section 2. Um, what are the most important words in what I just read? Well, I think that the House is chosen uh, by the people directly. That, um, and that's a big difference from the way that our, the Senate was chosen uh, senators were elected um, prior to the passage of the 17th Amendment. So um, this is actually the great compromise. Um, the Virginia delegation back uh, during the Constitutional Conventions had proposed um, where each um, body would allocate their seats by population. So both the Senate and the House, uh, the number of senators and House members would vary depending on the, the states or their size. Um, but in the House, members would be voted on. In New Jersey, which at the time was a small state, um, they only wanted a unicameral legislature, only wanted one body, just the House, no Senate, um, with each state having equal representation. So New Jersey gets two House members, Virginia gets two House members. Um, this was very controversial, and the Senate, uh, it, the discussions broke down um, and at the very end, the Connecticut delegation saved the day with the Great Compromise. That the Senate, I don't think Connecticut, um, the Senate uh, would have equal representation, right? So every Senate, every state, no matter if you're a big state or a little state, you get two senators, not, one, not more, not less. Um, however, at the time, the Senate would be chosen by the state legislature. Your Senate rep senators would be chosen by the legislature. By contrast, the House seats would be apportioned um, by population size, uh, with each state getting a minimum of one House member. 
even if you're really little. So, um, yep. So we have all of these these House members and all of that. Where the the thing about what I just read in the Constitution, Freda, is that it doesn't say anything about how district lines ought to be drawn. Correct. Explain but it, but and get closer to the microphone. Okay, correct. But the concept there is proportionality. It talks about counting the people, um, uh, knowing how many representatives you've got, and drawing the district so that there's an approximately equal number of people in each district, so everyone's vote is valued uh, the same or similarly. And today we have, uh, we have congressional districts of roughly 700,000 people and change. Exactly, exactly. And um, so, um, so Patrick, take us, take us forward to, there's a, there was a, a case that, that you and I spoke about a couple of days ago, um, the, the sort of one person, one vote. Sure. Explain that. Sure. So this is in the 1960s. Get closer and, to the microphone, if you would. Sure. 1960s. Um, Supreme Court decides it's a divided vote in the Supreme Court, and they looked back at the hist They looked back at the founding documents, and they read by the people to incorporate a concept known as one person, one vote. So that is to go to Freda's point about um, you know roughly you know equal representation in the House. Um, that's where the concept came from, Westbury versus Sanders. Fred, go okay. ahead. Okay, yet what has happened, um, because districts need to be redrawn to achieve proportionality every 10 years after there's a new census, legislators have on occasion, many occasions, and increasingly taken advantage of this opportunity to, to draw the lines in such a way that there would be equal numbers of people within the district, but they would take into account the partisan nature of the people in the district and draw the districts to confer partisan advantage on their own party. And, but this is not a new thing, Freda. This has been going on since the, um, since the Constitution was ratified, yes? I don't know if it goes back that far. I, it's the, the name gerrymandering is credited to Elbridge Gerry, who was a Massachusetts governor, and supposedly he drew a map in 1812 that re resembled a salamander, so they dubbed it the gerrymander. After him. Yes. Patrick. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, we he were actually. His, I'm told he pronounced his name Gary, actually, but it doesn't sound as good. The gerrymander is not as good as the gerrymander. Right. Yes, yeah, mm -hmm. it, was, it, was, it was a gerrymander, but gerrymander does sound much better. Um, the first, actually, ex first actual example that I am familiar with of um, the phenomenon of, of political considerations playing into districting was actually in the very first Congress in Virginia, where Patrick Henry of give me liberty or give me death uh, fame convinced the Virginia legislature to draw Virginia's fifth district to pit James Madison, one of, the, of course, one of the fa famous founding fathers, against a powerful rival, James Monroe. So this is a technique that can be used in redistricting where you pit incumbents or powerful people against one another. Who won that race? James Madison won, and of course went on to be the chief draftsman of the Bill of Rights, um, and, and one of the and the Constitution itself. Well, true. Yeah, and the and you know one of the first um, presidents. But the key is, even going back into the 1970s after Westbury, there's the Supreme Court has recognized many, many, many times that districting is an inherently political process, and it is entrusted by our Constitution to political actors, to state legislatures and to Congress. Um, is this, when you say that, is this one of those things where, that falls under the heading of, um, you know, any powers we haven't enumerated here fall to the states? 
No, it's actually enumerated in Article I, Section 4 of the Constitution. Um, and it says that uh, state legislatures shall determine the time, place, and manner of holding elections subject to uh, congressional oversight. So time, place, and manner then gets blown out into drawing district boundaries. That's correct. Um, can you guys talk about how it actually happens now? So in 2012, was the, following the 2010 census, was when we had the last round of redistricting in the state of Ohio. We went from uh, 18 congressional districts to 16 congressional districts, which meant that a couple of people were gonna lose their jobs. Um, Freda, what happened at that time? Well, one thing that happened in the lead up to that election in 2000, um, before the 2010 election, was that the, Republic, the national Republican Party decided that it, it would be smart, and it was smart for them, to engage in a strategy to make sure that their candidates won in 2010 so that their candidates would be wielding the pen when the new districts were drawn um, for the next decade. And so the Republican State Legislative Committee um, embarked on something called Project Red Map, where they identified states that were susceptible to being swung. Ohio was one of them. And they infused money and effort into Ohio, into campaigns in Ohio, so that they performed very well in Ohio that year, got control of both legislative houses, and then, of course, used that power um, after the census that took place in 2010 to draw the districts to their advantage. We had been, uh, prior to, when there were 18 congressional districts, Patrick, what was the breakdown of Democratic districts to Republican districts, or Democratic members of the Congressional Caucus to, or was it six to 10? Don't hold me to that, but I think that's right. And then, and then afterwards we were down, it was, it, the, the, the ratio of Ds to Rs became uh, sort of one D to, to three Rs. Right, so 25% so Democratic in the congressional delegation and 75% Republican? Approximately, yes. Correct, approximately. Oh, not approximately, exactly, <laughs> but by, by design. 16 divided by four. Yeah, yeah. By, by design, um, the, um, the, the, this project determined, they, the, the project continued then to, to work on the maps, um, the, the national Republicans continued to work on the maps with the state Republicans um, in Ohio. Can we, and can they, de they determined, I should get closer. No, no, you're fine. Oh. Keep going. Okay. Well, I, just, I, mean, okay. I, wanted to, I wanted to get to specifically, you described a strategy. Right. Um, Patrick, you've been closer to some of the conversations that have, create, that have led to maps, legislative maps that are currently um, functioning and currently in use. What is the actual thing that happens? How do these maps actually get drawn? Who controls the... Who draws them? Who signs off on them? Who, who, and where does this happen? So, or, or in 2012, D tell the story. Sure. So, a a, just a few basic, you know, points. Um, so, in 20 t 2010, by all accounts, was a wave election year. Um, this was after uh, uh, Obamacare uh, engendered a lot of pushback within a lot of states, and so a lot of Republicans won in 2010, including in the state legislatures and including in many of the state offices, including governor and, and other, other offices here in Ohio. So the key to remember about di districting in Ohio and in most other states is it is a legislative process. The legislature draws the map. Because maps are incredibly complex, um, and we can get into that later, um, you know, there are leadership, like in any other legislation, you know, leadership takes its, you know, takes the lead. Um, 
maps are distributed in various ways to, to caucus members. There is political uh, back and forth, um, certainly with Republicans holding, you know, uh, having just been elected in a, in a large wave. They had a certain amount of bargaining power, and they used it. Um, and so this yeah. involves um, the state, the the state legislative leaders, the leaders of the state legislature, are the ones who are officially in control of this process and leading this process. But they work in collaboration with their congressional counterparts. The, the you know, so John Boehner was Speaker of the House at the time. Uh, I don't recall who was um, who was Speaker of the legislature of the Ohio legislature, who was leading the Ohio legislature at the time. But it's my understanding that they were they were collaborating, they were talking to each other pretty frequently during this process. Is that accurate? Um, that I, I don't have that exact detail. I wouldn't be surprised. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's absolutely part of the process that you take advice from any number of different people. Um, I think the important point with Ohio's plan is Ohio. You know, we they passed the plan in I believe it was September of 2011. Um, the Democrats weren't very satisfied with it. Uh, they threatened a referendum it and the parties went back to the drawing board and they passed the plan in December of 2011 with extremely broad bipartisan support in both houses of the legislature. Broad bipartisan support? 77 to 17 on final passage. Okay, Freda. Um, okay, so it's a very good question how the maps are drawn because these legislators um, don't sit down with um, computers and, and, and design the maps. They hire consultants and the consultants use databases, very sophisticated databases, that have information about voters, where they live, and, and how they vote. Um, of course, people vote in secret, so you can't know how each individual votes, but there is precinct level data. So it's, it's pretty um, granular data about who lives where and how they vote. Well, and but they do know whether uh, a certain voter polls is a member of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or the Green well. Party because of the primary ballot which they pull, and that's public data. Which primary ballot? Which primary ballot you pull is sort of how you declare what party you're a member of. Exactly. They also have that data, and actually these days they have even more data because um, so much data is available um, um, from from so many sources. But at that time they they had partisan data. And they had um, map drawing tools, supercomputers, that would generate maps that they would judge according to partisan indexes to see how the map would perform, how, what, how the vote would come out if one particular map was used as opposed to another map. And so these consultants created maps that would confer a partisan advantage, um, as you said, Dan, 75% um, uh, Republican safe seats and 25% Democratic safe seats. And they designed this so that it would be immovable, no matter how many, um, what kind of wave election occurred during the next decade, that this 75-25 um, advantage would be permanently frozen in, in, um, in Ohio. And it has. The, the, the maps have um, performed exactly as planned, um, even though the statewide vote has swung between um, 50 to 60 percent, the, um, there's a, always, always a 75 percent Republican um, uh, share of seats and a 25 percent Democratic share of seats. It's, it's, actually, it's immovable by the voters. It defies the will of the voters. Instead, it obeys the, the, the map makers' design. Patrick, is that a bad thing or a good thing? Well, I would start by disagreeing with the premise. I think there's, um, 
the idea that voters are automatons and that you can look at how a voter votes in a statewide election, how they voted in the 28 presidential and the 2010 gubernatorial and say, to an absolute degree of certainty, this voter is going to vote for a Republican no matter who's on the ballot. Um, you do see, some, I mean, look, we've had a fairly stable congressional delegation over the past eight years, but I think the, the composition of who our elected leaders are matters. Incumbency advantage matters yeah. from Republican legislators that um, won in 2010, not under the, the current map. Um, is it the case, though, that, um, I mean, sometimes the critique is that uh, legislators or elected officials are choosing their voters rather than voters choosing their elected officials. It, have we created a situation where that's actually true? I think for the most part, I, I think that's not true. I think there are some legislators that, um, for a variety of reasons, that their, their districts are, are drawn a certain way, and we can get into that um, you know, as we need to. Um, but sure, at some point, voter, you know, you know, members of Congress um, may very well be drawn in the districts that slightly favor one party or the other, or may, in the case of many of the Democratic districts, are, are very strongly Democratic and due so to the, political geography. So it's interesting. I mean, in the case of Ohio, it was Republicans who had control at the time that the maps were drawn, and they exercised control in sort of the predictable way that to, to their advantage, as politicians do, right? Politicians always sort of, when they have power, they, they use that to their advantage, and they can't be blamed. It's like blaming the scorpion for stinging the whatever that was in that parable. But, um, but, the, um, but there are other states in which, um, in which Democrats have had the advantage and have, have had the power and used that to their advantage in the same ways. And, and my understanding of recent history in Ohio is that when, for during that brief moment prior to 2010, when the, when, prior to that a wave that you referred to, when the Democrats were in charge, they kind of kicked the can down the road thinking that they would be in charge during the drawing of the congressional maps so that they could, and they thought they would have power for that, um, or at that moment. There are two cases that the Supreme Court is about to decide on, or you know, that they've been, they've been thinking about. Um, one is in Wisconsin, the other is in Maryland. Maryland is a case where Democrats were in charge, um, and uh, and a group of voters filed a suit against the uh, against those who had drawn the map to say that they had that this uh, the the way in which the map had had been drawn disenfranchised them and violated their First Amendment rights, as I understand what I what I read on SCOTUS blog today. Um, can you, Patrick, can you describe that case a little bit and, and sort of what's at stake there and how, like, how somebody's First Amendment rights come into play with, a, with the drawing of a con congressional district map? Okay, so you're, so you're, we're talking Whitford, right, in Wisconsin. I, th I, I, I thought we were talking Maryland. Oh, Maryland. oh you're doing Maryland. Okay, we'll yeah, do Maryland's Maryland the first. Democratic one, right? That's right. Okay. okay, so Maryland first. So um, this is kind of an, uh, a, a theory that was developed from a concurrence that uh, Justice Kennedy wrote some 14 years ago in a, in, a, uh, in a prior case trying to figure out some way to judicially deal with um, partisan gerrymandering. So and Justice Anthony Kennedy of the U.S. Supreme that's Court. That's correct. Just to be clear. That's right. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, the, the basic theory um, that these plaintiffs have alleged is that uh, they, the best way I can characterize it is that they have a First Amendment right to win an election, that they have a First Amendment right to, they can vote, everyone agrees they can vote, everyone agrees they can participate, but 
that they have a, they have a right to win, and that their right to win is violated if the or constitutes some kind of viewpoint discrimination. That sounds like I have a First Amendment right to the previous gerrymandered map. Sounds like you have a First Amendment right to free speech, which uh -huh. you do. Yeah. And you have a free, free and you and you have every right to participate in democracy. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't have a right. You don't have. There's no Goldilocks principle based in the First Amendment where you can have just enough members of your same political party to elect the leader of your choice, but not too many that you waste your vote because otherwise you could vote maybe to help a different Democratic candidate. Mm -hmm. um, the First Amendment only prescribes speech um, that prohibits associational rights or compels associational rights, right? So you can't, I can't force people to associate with one another. I can't prohibit them from associating with a political activity. Um, that's never been applied to voting as the direct act of voting, and I don't think that it should. It's, it suggests, Freda, that the, I mean, that, that argument that my First Amendment rights have been violated if I'm, if I'm drawn into a district that used to elect Republic, uh, Republicans and now elects Democrats, that um, somehow if I'm of one party, I can't, uh, I can't appeal for a redress of grievances to a member of the other party. Is that the, is that, and that, and that seems silly. Well, the, the First Amendment theory From here. From this non-legal yeah, perspective, yeah. seems silly. Um, the First Amendment theory here is of one of retaliation, that the party in control, the Republicans, are taking um, actions against people who vote Democratic and by moving them for having exercised by voting um, for the Democratic Party into districts where their votes will not count because they'll either be wasted because they've been packed into districts that um, are so Democratic that in, in any vote in excess of anything over 50% doesn't get you any more of a victory. So if you're in a district where you're winning by 80%, your vote isn't counting. Or um, being so thinly distributed, the, the practice is called being cracked, um, being so diluted that you, you can never win um, in a district. And when, the, when one party does this to another, as um, you've indicated, Dan, that the, the um, Democrats also do it, they're equal opportunity, the party in control, um, has has, has um, been able to do this, um, then they're denying the first, first Amendment associational rights of the other party. They're also denying the e equal protection under the law to the other party. Um, the, the, the fact Are that, they? Um, well, that, that's what, something that the Supreme Court will affirm. Well, you're really into the ACLU. I mean, you're, you're an ACLU person. You're really into civil liberties and freedom of speech and all of that stuff. Do you see that as, like a, as the, an infringement of somebody's First Amendment rights? I do, because some, the government is supposed to respect the speech and the associational rights of everyone equally. And if one party controls the government and it suppresses and punishes the associational and speech rights of the other party, then that's a violation of the First Amendment. Well, so connect this to the, have we moved into the Wisconsin case without me noticing? Are we, or well, I think? Both rights are yeah. implicit explain, here. Explain the Wisconsin case, because we talked about the, the Maryland case. Okay, well the, the, the difference between the two, there's some interesting differences, but also some very fundamental similarities between the two cases. Maryland involves the Democrats doing it to the Republicans. Wisconsin was the Republicans doing it to the Democrats. Um, and Wisconsin was a challenge to all of the districts, the, the state um, uh, legislative districts in the state. Maryland was just a challenge uh, to one district, to the drawing of one district. In Maryland, 
the Democrats allegedly, um, probably from my point of view, um, uh, wanted to flip a district. So they drew, redrew lines that moved a bunch of Republicans out and put enough Democrats in so that the district would turn from Republican to Democratic. Mm -hmm. Patrick, um, is that how you, how you understand those ca that case as well? Yes, that's, yeah. that's basically correct. Yeah. That's is, right. that, is that the sort of thing, moving district lines to, to create safety, is that the sort of thing that Republicans in Ohio have done, did in 2012, 2011? Well, I think Republicans, um, remember, when Republicans started out, the, the ultimate change in the way that the, the districts went is Republicans lost the seat, Democrats lost the seat. That's mm -hmm. ultimately the way things, things turned out. And the way that Republic, the way that you know, Freda talked about packing and cracking, the idea that you concentrate one party's voters in a small number of districts and then you distribute the remaining voters across a large number of districts, is that it tends to create, what you actually create are a lot of very competitive districts throughout the state because you have, a, because there are simply only so many voters that you can put into all these districts. And so in truth, um, you don't have a lot of, you don't have as many safe Republican districts necessarily as you would. Do we just not have strong enough candidates? I think candidate specific factors are very important. I think when you look at the Republicans, I mean, I live in the 14th, which is represented by Dave Joyce. He works tirelessly to, to hold that seat every two years. And that's not by accident. That's because the Democratic Party is nipping at his heels every single election. Uh, that's not an endorsement of, uh, of him, although I like him, but that's just a statement, that's, that's just reality. Um, these congressmen run very, very hard every time. Uh, just to reset for a second, Patrick sure. Lewis is a, a partner with Baker Hostetler, a member of the Federalist Society, Fred Levinson's legal director at the ACLU. Can we take a step back for a second? We've been talking about partisan gerrymandering, which is kind of what drives most of it. In, uh, in Ohio, of course, the 11th Congressional District, which had been represented by Lou Stokes for many years, and then Stephanie Tubbs-Jones, and now Marsha Fudge. And Lou Stokes was the first African-American to represent Ohio in Congress. And that district was drawn uh, after a, a, a judicial decision, right? Freda, can you, can you describe sort of the, the, the difference in drawing district lines for racial, to, to create racial equity as opposed, for part, as opposed to for partisan purposes. Yes, there, there, uh, federal law requires that minority um, uh, populations be able to enact, uh, excuse me, to, uh, to elect representatives of, of their choice. And this is also and, a First Amendment thing, right? This would connect to the kind of First Amendment well, this is a conversation we were having it, before. It does, but, but it's also in, much more explicit when it comes to racial gerrymandering that it's, it's actually um, required by statute. The Voting Rights Act says that you, uh, the, the government can't intentionally dilute the votes of minorities by gerrymandering. So, but they can intentionally enhance the impact of minorities by gerrymandering. They can um, do the opposite. Um, correct, but if they do it to such a degree that it constitutes partisan gerrymandering, then there's a case before the Supreme Court that says that, they, that that's gonna be questionable. Patrick. So, there is the, there is the concept that when you have um, districts or you have a sufficiently large group of uh, minority voters, whether they're African-American or in, in different states, uh, Hispanic Americans can also qualify, um, that the Voting Rights Act 
uh, does in certain circumstances require the creation of what's called a minority a majority minority district um, and that's what we have in Ohio's 11th um, so you know the interplay between um, what are called racial gerrymandering claims with Fred referenced and political uh, you know districting for political advantage um, is something that the Supreme Court will deal with and is probably one of the cutting-edge issues uh, you know, in districting law right now. Because, uh, and it's a cutting-edge issue because of the ways in which politicians and political operatives and demographers understand about how minority communities vote. There's, there's that, yes, that's exactly right, because there is um, some correlation between African-American voters and Democratic voters. And so um, moving African-American voters um, into a district to increase minority voting strength can also have the effect of packing Democratic voters. So it, it, it creates a, a very um, complex situation. And um, the, the state of North Carolina actually used the Voting Rights Act as a defense when they were charged with partisan gerrymandering. They said, no, we weren't trying to pack Democrats, we were trying to protect um, minority voters. This all has to be untangled. It, yeah, we're doing a great job right now. Um, the, <laughs> um, the issue, the, let's move to issue one before we open it up to, to questions from our audience. Um, issue one passed pretty soundly uh, in, uh, in this May primary. And, um, and issue one does not create, as some states, when they've done redistricting reform, Patrick, you mentioned earlier that most states leave it up to the legislatures and there are, so there's 37 states that do that and according to my notes what I what there are six states that have these independent commissions that function in sort of black boxes of technocrats that draw that draw lines and um, in seven states that don't do anything because they're so tiny population wise that they only have a single congressional representative and and it's the whole that district is the entire state Wyoming. Um, so, uh, so we have issue one, which passed and is now law that um, that requires uh, what exactly, Freda? Um, describe what issue one does and how it changes things, and then and then I think we'll get into some of the the sort of third level criteria that come into play if no if no compromises can be reached. Okay. Um, well, issue one was the result of a compromise because, um, as you know, fair districts, fair elections had been campaigning very hard um, or, or petitioning very hard to put a referendum on the ballot for a reform measure. Seeing that that reform measure had a very good chance of getting passed, um, the Ohio legislature, of course controlled by the Republicans, came up with its own reform measure and um, planned to put that on the ballot. So the two sides sat down, rather than have competing ballot measures, and they ha hammered out a compromise. Um, the compromise is essentially a process, how maps will be drawn, starting with the new census data that comes out in 2020. So it, this map will not take effect until the election in 2022, because it's a two-year process. First the census has to be taken, then the data has to be, digested, then the state has to draw the maps. And this so, will be, in 2022, important because Ohio is likely to lose at least one more congressional seat. Exactly, that's projected. So there'll be, so ballot issue one will take effect in the drawing of the new map, the new congressional map in 2022 that will give us probably one less seat. The way the process works is it starts in the legislature 
which ha will have the first chance um, in 2021 to enact a map. Um, if the legislature uh, fails to pass it with a certain vote amount that's prescribed by ballot issue one and a certain degree of minority support, um, then the map drawing pen goes to a commission which um, has an a, a opportunity to draw a map. If that commission can produce a map with a certain amount of mi minority party support, um, it would. If it fails to, then the pen goes back to the legislature where one of two things can happen. Either the legislature could pass a map now with only a small amount of, a smaller amount of minority party input, or if that fails, the legislature could pass a map um, with just one party um, drawing it. But uh, that said, there's also that they have to abide by certain criteria having to do with compactness of districts and not dividing municipalities and only dividing, not dividing more than 16 of the 88 counties or something of that sort. Patrick, I think you know this better than I do. So um, I'll let you consult sure. your notes for a second. But. Um, so much for knowing better than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, but while Patrick's going through his notes, I'll just add that there are some standards that I think Patrick will talk about, but it's noteworthy that the standards are weakened and diluted as the process goes on. So they apply most to the first crack where the legislature passes the map, and they're highly dilute by the time that um, we get this um, one-party map. You, you sound unhappy about this, but you mm -hmm. also, but, but by the same token, you sounded, as you described the, the compromise that went into mm -hmm. issue, the formation mm -hmm. of issue one, you also, the, there was a, the, your tone of voice suggested that compromise is a good thing. Um, yeah, compromise is a good thing, and it's wonderful that this issue passed because it shows that Ohioans want reform. 75% or 79% of Ohioans, um, a very high percentage, voted for issue one and really want to cure gerrymandering. Also, the ballot issue does some good things. It, it shines more light on the process. Um, the, the current congressional maps were literally drawn in a um, hotel room that the, the Republicans dubbed the bunker. And, and they did it um, you know, with their private consultants and, and didn't share the map um, with the Democrats or with the public. Um, until that they had to be voted on. So that, that will not happen under ballot issue one, so it's an improvement. Patrick. So the, the way I look at issue one, first of all, I, I think it does provide a really a, a neat opportunity for um, Ohio to you know, move to the forefront of, of you know, districting that um, can be done in a way that improves public confidence. Um, whether it succeeds, Frankly, I think depends on how whether the courts get out of the way and let and give the parties, um, the political parties, uh, enough uh, skin in the game. You know, my my fear is if there are too many ways to just file litigation and you know tie maps up in court and you know not cooperate, um, the, the out of party, out of power party could simply just refuse to play ball, refuse to agree to anything, and roll the dice with their federal lawsuit and come back in four years. So that's one of the. Um, and just to kind of back into that, one of the consequences if you, the state legislature gets the first crack, the basic rule is if the minority party uh, votes 50% in both houses of the legislature for the map, then it's, the map is enacted. If it goes to the, the uh, redistricting commission, which is also charged with drawing the state legislative maps, um, it there again requires support from the minority party to pass. 
it comes back to the legislature again, then the, the number drops to a third of the minority party to get a 10-year map. And if you don't get a third of the minority party, then you only get a four-year map. So, so it's not as durable. It's, it's not as durable. And so you know, in an ideal world, what you'd want is for the parties to come together and say, all right, how are we going to deal with this in a way that's, um, you know, that's equitable to, to parties that everyone can live with? So I, I want one last question, then we're going to open it up to questions from all of you. Um, but in the, you know, before the Constitution was ratified, or you know, to go back to this, this important document that is our, that, that's kind of framing this whole thing for us, um, before the Constitution was ratified, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton uh, wrote most of the Federalist Papers. And, um, and Madison, in one of them, talks about the importance of virtue. And that without virtue, then you know, things basically run amok. And there is no guarantee. If there aren't virtuous people making decisions, there's no guarantee that we get to keep this whole thing intact. And so my question for both of you is a version of the what is best for democracy question in this when it comes to drawing district boundaries. But what is the most virtuous thing for democracy? Fred Levinson. Well, there's no particular mechanism that needs to be adopted to, to be virtuous. There's some characteristics of what would be virtuous. And that would be one that would be open and transparent to the public um, because uh, virtue exists in the sunlight and, and not in the shade. Um, it would be one that respects um, uh, one person, one vote, and, and, and not um, deprive people of the right to make their vote count. Um, because of their political affiliations. It would be one that respects um, uh, minorities and makes sure that my, minority parties aren't, uh, my, minority populations aren't diluted. Um, and it would be one that, it, it, um, is that people can trust because it, it, it looks like a fair mechanism, that it's either bipartisan or nonpartisan. Patrick, what do you think? Well, I think, to begin, I think it is, districting is an inherently political process. There's actually a very interesting statistic that there have only been, there are, for a state as large as Ohio, there are 10 to the 300th possible ways to draw a map of the state of Ohio. By contrast, there have only been 10 to the 17th seconds since the beginning of time. So you're looking at an in, a nearly infinite way to draw districts. And the Supreme Court has recognized for many, many, many decades that districting is inherently political. So the first sort of step in virtue would be to have politically accountable actors engaged in the process. I agree with, I agree with Freda that, um, that transparency is, is a virtue here. I think that, you know, that um, people are on their best behavior when eyes are on them. Um, and so I, I think that's, that's, that's certainly important. You know, my concern is always when courts come in and, and take control of the process and you have judges throwing maps out um, using you know largely untested social science metrics and saying well this efficiency gap is over here or this seat share analysis shows this or you know what have you because now you have judges drawing maps and when we look at a, a, a democratic process um, I want democratically accountable actors deciding uh, these very important uh, decisions I don't want unelected federal judges it's interesting, though. I mean, given like you know that that you would that unelected federal judges, even though that's sort of this other part of the Constitution, this kind of this third this balance of power and the separation of powers, that that would that would kind of rub you the wrong way. 
Well, and that gets, that gets to the heart of one of the major questions that the Supreme Court is deciding in the Wisconsin case, Whitford, which is, is there, a, is there a judicially manageable way to determine the fairness of the drawing of, of congressional districts, or state legis actually Whitford state legislative districts, but it's the same concept. Um, that is an unbelievably difficult question. And I think the Supreme Court has, I mean, we can go through, there have been you know, fractious opinions going all the way back to 1985 when this concept of political gerrymandering um, first hit the, the courts and was recognized potentially by the courts. Um, there's not really a principled way to do it. Parties just haven't found it yet. So you have judges exercising, you know, you run a big risk that you'll have judges that are exercising will. Whoever's got the better expert wins. Um, then you have judges potentially drawing maps. And then who's the judge's expert? Now you have somebody's expert, you know, one political scientist is now drawing the map. Mm -hmm. um, these are, you know, these, these are areas of concern. Patrick Lewis is a partner at Baker Hostetler. He's also a leader in uh, Greater Cleveland's federal branch of the Federalist Society. Fred Levinson is with us as well. For, she's legal director at the ACLU of Ohio. I'm Dan Malthrop of the City Club. We're going to audience questions. Can we have our first one? Yes, uh, my name's Bashara Addison, and thank you so much for being here this evening. And my question for you uh, is around the census. So um, I'm under the impression that the census is not being, the, set, the collection of population statistics is not being funded at the same level as it has been in past years. Yet this process around um, redrawing the lines is actually very dependent on um, the collection of census data. So are you concerned at all, or how do you think that the, this, this upcoming collection of census data is gonna impact the drawing of the lines? I think it could very well have an impact in exactly the, the way that you've said, that the collection of the census data needs to be accurate in order to draw these lines. I don't have any um, special expert knowledge beyond um, what, what you've said. I, I think, though, that's a really legitimate concern. Patrick Lewis? I mean, I, 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 everything I've heard is that the census will be conducted as we would expect, um, and that you know I'm not aware of, of any problems, but I'm not as to be candid, I'm not an expert either. Um, but I, I would just trust that the census would do what it's done since the beginning of the country. I, I have heard, as you have, that the funding is the funding has been reduced, but one doesn't know what that what that means exactly. Our next question. Yeah, from my own experience, from what I've seen, both parties want to win no matter what. I think that uh, possibly a the best way to do this would might be to take it out of the hands of the parties and create a commission of bipartisan judges perhaps to do this. Question, has it ever been tried and what have been the success rates? There are six states that use independent commissions. I don't know how many of them use independent commissions that are, that are comprised of judges, but um, what do you both know about the independent commissions and how they operate? I do know that that, they're in, that, that, that is correct, what, what you're saying, Dan and that they are non-politicians who are members of the commissions. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that they're judges. Mm -hmm. Patrick Lewis, how do they function? So the one I'm probably most familiar with is California's uh, redistricting commission, which was Which enacted. is a relatively new. Yes, it was enacted after 2010. I don't have the exact year. Um, and they, it essentially functions, it's a very complex process for how you get put on this commission, but in, in essence, it's, I believe it's five, it's, it's either four Democrats and four Republicans, or it's five Republicans and five Democrats, and then either four or five, quote unquote, independent 
um, you know, individuals that form the commission. Um, and then Swing they, voters. That's, that's one, potentially. Um, you know, and after one thing I, that struck me was there, um, you know, following the first uh, congressional election after the um, Independent Redistricting Commission, uh, despite the fact California did not actually change its number of seats, I think there were several Republicans that lost their seats and that um, there were allegations, I can't speak to them, um, you know, that, that Democrats have sort of prevailed in, the, you know, in that process. But that process, that, that also went hand in hand with, a, with an open primary that, um, that changed the dynamics of primary, of primary elections so that uh, if, you had a, if previously you had a quote-unquote safe seat, then you could run as a relatively far right or far left partisan and be safe in the in the general. But the open primary meant that the top two vote getters and anybody could run. You could have thirty people run, and the top two vote getters would face off in the general, um, which which sort of then meant that moderates were favored in that process. So which may have accounted for the flipping of seats as well, right? Well, that I can't. That I can't speak to. What I can say is that before and after the question is, does the independent redistricting commission create a process that's more fair? I can certainly speak to. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that, that felt that it wasn't more fair. Do you know anything about the about Iowa? The, the that's been held up to me as a uh, as a sort of a black box of public integrity, where you know, like nobody messes with the the independent redistricting commission and. And there's, you know, and people really respect it. I was sort of a little bit easier to draw district lines because it's a much more homogenous population than you'd find in a state like Ohio. And it's eight districts, right? If you say so. <laughs> well, we're we're going to look at Fred as well. Fred has got notes on this. Fact check. Um, but anyway, I guess, um, I mean, there are six of these. There are six of these around the country, and they all seem to function a little bit differently. Freda, do you have any? Any other intelligence to share? Yeah, I don't see that Iowa is one of them on this. Oh, I, it wouldn't be the first time I was wrong. Oh no, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Am I right? We're gonna have to cut this part you're, out, you're Jeff. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll come back to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I shouldn't be sitting here. We'll come like back to that. Reading Do we, let's go. Let's go to our next question. Hi. Just briefly, we're talking about judges and their involvement, and I guess my initial thought is, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a cold. Judges really are not supposed to be political in most capacities. And if anything, judicial canons, I know particularly I'm thinking of state judges, maybe more so than federal, but they're really not supposed to engage in endorsement and issues. Mm -hmm. So to me, talking about judges getting the pen and drawing districts and getting involved with political parties, I guess I'd like your thoughts on that. And then secondly, when you're talking about packing the districts in, um, well, if you look at some of the map of Ohio, even where the blue and the red, as they say, are, they, they do tend to be in specific areas where maybe voters who share certain political backgrounds are kind of in one area. So does that not also go to drawing a district, I guess? Those are my questions. That, oh. that is such a good okay. question. Okay. Freda and then Patrick, go. Okay, so first of all, um, we're not talking about judges drawing districts. We're talking about judges evaluating maps to see whether that an unconstitutional amount of gerrymandering has occurred. The judge doesn't, um, draw the district. They would say to the legislature, redraw it. Um, what the judges do is apply standards that would test whether or not a map has been impermissibly gerrymandered. And that's actually what the Supreme Court said um, the last time it spoke on the subject was, 
We think that political gerrymandering is unconstitutional. It violates people's rights. We just don't have a way to measure how much a district has been gerrymandered. And, and not only we can't measure it, we can't even determine what's the amount that's too much. And unless we can say how much there is and, and how much is too much, we have no business striking down um, the work of politicians. Um, and we have no business making a decision that won't give some intelligence to district courts who have to make decisions in the futures. So the justices of the Supreme Court actually said, um, and this was in 2004, come back to us sometime with, with a case that shows some methodology, some, some way, mathematical, scientific way of um, measuring gerrymandering. And political scientists and mathematicians really took the, the challenge to heart and they worked on it and many different methods have come up in recent years and this um, Wisconsin case is, is an example of a couple of tests being applied, scientific tests. Courts use scientific evidence all the time to make determinations. They use it in employment discrimination, they use it in economic um, contests, um, antitrust, they, they um, use it in patent cases, they, they use scientific information all the time. And this, they, this, the information has to be reliable and it has to be so non-abstruse that, that the court can understand it and, and, and work with it. So um, that's actually what happened in Wisconsin and that's happened in a couple of, of other states too where that are um, before the court and it's evaluating these different methodologies. So, you know, again, to reemphasize, this is not judges drawing maps. This is judges using standards to determine whether or not the Constitution's been violated. Um, the other point, though, has to do with how people cluster together in, in communities among like-minded Yeah, that's folks. a really, really interesting um, challenge. And um, parties in power that have been defending gerrymandered maps have relied on that as a defense. They say, we can't help it, this is natural gerrymandering. This is geography. This is because Democrats tend to cluster together in cities and Republicans tend to, to disperse and, 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 and move out into suburban and rural areas. And so the Democrats are gerrymandering themselves. So that does um, raise a question that needs to be evaluated when you're looking at a map. Is this the product of natural gerrymandering or does this go even further, much further, demonstrably, statistically further than, um, than uh, natural gerrymandering would, um, would cause? One way of doing this, um, mathematicians have, as, as Patrick was saying, that there's so many ways of, of drawing a map. Mathematicians with supercomputers can generate literally billions, and, or you don't even need that many, hundreds of thousands of maps, and they could apply rules to, the, to their computers to say, make a map that's compact, that's contiguous, that observes political boundaries. Let's get all these possible maps that could be drawn, and let's look and see where does the state that we're looking at um, come out compared to all these possible districts. And all of these possible districts are working with populations that are living where they're living, the people that have naturally gerrymandered themselves. So every map's naturally gerrymandered, but if the state you're looking at is still an, an extreme outlier, then you know something is, is going on there. It would be statistically improbable to generate that map just based on where people live. Patrick Lewis. So um, I think I'll try to take this, I think the second um, question I'll, I'll try to take first because I think it kind of flow, it flows. And, and that is, 
Um, there's no question that in a state like Ohio, and it's not true in every state, but in a state like Ohio, that Democratic voters tend to be highly geographically concentrated in the cities, in the urban counties. Um, and if you're a Republican in Cuyahoga County, you know this very well. If, by contrast, if you're a Democrat in a rural county, you also know it well. Um, when you're electing statewide, um, that has certain implications. And when you're electing in, in a, any office uh, that represents a district, which, which are your legislators, um, that has necessary implications for um, you know, how votes will be allocated between the, all the different seats. Um, you know, there's discussion about you know these these scientific methods of looking at uh, you know looking at you know potential districtings, and I've encountered these these uh, some of these experts, including some of the leading experts in the in the field, and um, you know it's very interesting. They'll, they'll draw you'll get 500 maps that will be drawn uh, using these sort of what are called neutral criteria. Uh, the map has to the districts have to be compact, which I, we won't get into the details, but just think of that as a nice regular shape. Like the more a district looks like a circle or a square, the more compact it is. The more a district looks like a salamander. Uh, to go back to our, our governor, Governor Gary, uh, the less compact it is. Um, looking at the question of how many political subdivisions the district uh, line crosses. Are you, are you splitting cities? Are you splitting counties? Um, these are sort of the basic traditional criteria. Um, but you know they never really look at these maps. And you put the maps up and, and you show them these maps and no rational person would ever actually adopt most of these maps that they draw. These are all hypothetical maps. A great many of them aren't even legal maps. And then the question becomes, well, okay, you've demonstrated that using some sample of maps, we don't even know if they're a random sample, we just sort of know they're maps you drew out of a hat. Um, is the enacted map more partisan than those maps? And the political scientists can, in fact, come up with an answer that says yes, um, to a degree and subject to certain limitations. But the reality is, politics is allowed. Protecting incumbents, in many cases, is allowed. It's completely permissible. The question is, how much is too much? And none of these measures allow you to look between states to say, you take a state that you say Iowa's the gold standard, is. Iowa, can you compare Ohio to Iowa? No, you can't. Um, these mathematical models have a lot of problems as well. And that brings us to the question about judicial independence. Um, we don't want our judges wading too far into what the Supreme Court called many years ago the political thicket of districting. Even when you have maps. Judge, Judge Scalia, didn't, or, or is it Scalia who called No, this it? was way before. Just, I don't remember the oh, case. Oh, no, it was Alito recently, recently referred to it yes. as distasteful. Yes. It, it, and, and it really, and it, and it truly is. Because, you know, one thing that's, um, that's very interesting is even when you draw maps with a, um, n allegedly neutral criteria, they can, and maybe even truly neutral criteria, they can have dramatically different political effects. Um, one of the cases I worked on recently, um, you know, we had an expert that uses the Blue Water supercomputer, which is the largest research supercomputer in the country, to, to draw maps. And she drew a map of, she was able to draw a sample of maps of Maryland and was able to draw some maps, only six out of 200,000, so not a great deal, where the Democrats won using their criteria every single seat, all eight districts. So there's in, the, you can't get the politics out of districting. And so once you have judges in there deciding, well, this politics is too much and 
well, we're going to appoint a special master to draw a new set of districts. Uh, you get into judicial independence problems that, that threaten the independence of the judiciary. And you know, for that reason, my strong preference, whenever possible, is to have politically accountable actors drawing these maps. Freda, do you share that concern about the, the independence of the judiciary? Um, I, th I don't think that, I mean, certainly judges are, have opinions and, and, and um, political brief, beliefs and ideologies. Um, but if they're doing their job, they can apply the standards and tell um, whether a district is gerrymandered. Um, it includes just even looking at, at one of the factors that Patrick was talking about, compactness. Um, and that, that does mean regular boundaries, boundaries that don't look like a, a, a salamander. In Ohio, we have a district that looks like a snowflake, a very elaborate one. We have a district that looks like a snake on the lake. We have a district that looks like a robotic arm with narrow, jaggedy things sticking out of it. We have one that's shaped like an S, uh, a big, weird S. We have one that's, that's shaped like a yin-yang, two districts that wrap around each other like that. So, uh, you know, um, we have districts that, that that run along a highway without picking up any population. That's exactly right. That well, that would go to contigu contiguity. Uh, that's another yeah. standard in addition to compactness, where the district where districts are just barely contiguous, just by virtue of a little piece of highway where people don't live. So, you know, is there gerrymandering? I think a judge can tell. Um, uh, they have a, a variety of ways of telling. But the question is, like, yeah, yes, obviously there's gerrymandering. Obviously these things have been done for very express purposes, some of which are political, some of which are, I, oh, well, all of which are political. I mean, let's be honest. But, um, or, or, or not, or some of which are, are to satisfy the, you know, court, you know, court rulings or, or the mm -hmm. Voter Voting Rights Act. But is it a good thing or a bad thing? Well, right, who ultimately? owns and who the owns maps? good thing it, or bad thing? Well, is it the people or is it the, the politicians who draw who draw the maps that, mm -hmm. that should be in charge of who is elected? So um, our our public radio hour is over. Um, we're going to keep the conversation going after I ring the gong. But could everybody mm -hmm. please join me in thanking Patrick Lewis of Baker Hostetler and Fred Levinson of the ACLU of Ohio? I'm Dan Malthrop. This has been a, uh, a, a, the first in our Constitution Ale series, a conversation about the U.S. Constitution, the compromises that went into it, the, the effects of those compromises today. Uh, this is the City Club of Cleveland, and thank you so much for being a part of this. Our forum is now adjourned.